0: Hello and welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I'm your host Bart Vandersey, and today I am joined by Tony Fletcher, who's a great music biographer, to talk about Keith Moon. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me,
1: Bart. It's a great show.
0: Thank you, thank you. This is awesome. We've been we've been uh, trying to make it happen for a while. I think the first time we were going to record, my son was uh, my second son was born that day. So, <laughs>
1: yeah, probably a good idea for your marriage not to try and do a podcast the day your son is born. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but this
0: is a really cool one. I, I think Keith Moon is mythical. I mean, he holds a very special place in everyone's heart. Um, he was gone too soon. Um, I, before we start, I want to read you. You had in, in the book written somewhere, I believe, early on, Keith was a pop star by 18, wealthy member of UK's rock aristocracy by 25, and then he was dead by 32. Truly an interesting story. So uh, for the sake of time, because we're going to keep this kind of compressed today, Tony why don't we just jump in and um you can teach us about the life of Keith Moon.
1: Sure, absolutely. And my hope would be that given your your podcast and the listenership that people will your listeners will know Keith Moon to be an amazing, instinctive and incredibly influential drummer. Um you know, his antics, the moon the loon personality is totally wrapped up in his drumming. His drumming is wrapped up in his personality. Uh, He was hyperactive at least and possibly uh, would have been these days diagnosed with much more serious um, mental health issues than that. Uh, But for me, it's imp- it's imperative to state that although he seems a, an untutored drummer, and I'm sure a lot of the uh, drummers you've talked about over the years on, the, on your show were way more tutored and way more uh, disciplined and took more lessons, what Keith did within the world of rock and roll, uh, they're, they're, they're for me, is a kind of before Keith and an after Keith. And sure. he took the drums in rock music, particularly the 1960s rock music that was starting to conquer the world, beginning with the Beatles. And he took that drum effectively from the back of the stage to the front of the stage. He took the drummer from being the supporting member to being a star member. Uh, His Uh, unbelievably vivacious outgoing uh and and certainly at times completely lunatic personality uh is part of the legend of the who and and i loved it as a kid i just was probably like many kids how can anybody be like this Why can't I be like this? Of course, when I came to writing the book, I realized nobody would want to be like Keith, um, who was ultimately an incredibly tragic figure. But there's enormous happiness and success and beauty and art in a lot of what uh, the earlier parts of his life. And we'll, we'll get through that life. And as you've already mentioned, it ended way, way, way too soon. Um, but man, did you, uh, did he leave a mark on this planet from the time he was here?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's explosive and he just looking at his face and his eyes, he's very, there's a sweetness to him. I will say like, I believe you called him like the, uh, like the, a pinup, like a mod pinup. Mm. Uh, and it's, you know, it's just sad. Everything was just put on his shoulders and he had the personality to just take it and run with it. And um, as we start here, I will say that uh, your book, Dear Boy, The Life of Keith Moon is what we're going to be referencing. And then there was a great uh, BBC kind of biography documentary that you were in that I watched and took a bunch of notes on. I read the book is like 550 pages. So with a little kid, it was very hard to (laughs) go through it. (laughs) But it's a good reference and I really recommend it to people. Um, So to kick it off. And then you can take it away. But I believe, so he was born August 23rd, 1946, post-war, which I thought it was interesting that you said um, people born then didn't understand why parents wanted a quiet life after they had survived the war and the kids were like bored because of that.
1: Yeah, I think the original rock generation, particularly the British one, um, because you've got to remember that London was bombed. Uh, heavily, all of Britain was bombed in the Second World War. So, without downplaying the, uh, the 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 extreme importance of the U.S. entering the war after Pearl Harbor, the British by that point had suffered through the Blitz, and so the the damage in the UK was enormous. The physical damage, uh, the emotional damage on the returning soldiers was enormous as well. And uh, uh, this this comes up quite a lot in my biography, but uh, you know that that. Only very recently has mental health ever been addressed in the UK. Um, it, everything all the way through Q's life is just, oh, that's just who you are. You know, you just deal with it. So the soldiers came back, um, and they had no doubt seen atrocities and horrors and they bottled it up. And they just wanted a quiet life. They'd seen their home cities get bombed. They'd seen people die. They may have participated in, in enemies dying and they weren't going to talk about it. None of them would talk. Maybe they talked about it with each other, but you have a whole generation of British rock stars whose parents were in the war who never talked about it. Mm. And London was getting rebuilt. Um, there was support for uh, for housing, etc. But uh, England in the 50s, 60s, even when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, I mean, not yeah, the, the the place was still. When I was a kid in London in the 70s, there were still bomb sites everywhere. Um, this was 30 years after the war. And I actually remember going to Liverpool and seeing even more bomb sites. So it wasn't even like London had it, had it bad. So Keith grew up in this, um, post war, very initially quiet suburban. Let's rebuild the country environment. There's still rationing. There's still national service for older kids. And, um, he's a character from the beginning. He's just a, a little. I mean, he can turn it on. He can be a sweetheart. He can charm anybody. He knows he's one of those kids. He'll charm you. And then if he thinks he can get away with something, he'll just do like crazy stuff because that's who he was. He was the local tearaway uh but even from the beginning people loved him and uh and and forgave him and wanted to sort of be his friend because everybody was just like that keith moon you know what a what a (laughs) crazy what a crazy cat um but that's yeah that's the environment he grew up in relatively stable you know mum and dad uh two sisters um i i've seen the wembley house i haven't been inside it it's very normal and uh, to be honest uh there was a ton of british 60s future rock stars grew up in the exact same area of wembley harrow pinner you know elton johns from down the road uh, so many uh, great musicians uh richie blackmore um you know so many people came from that area of suburban london it's fascinating
0: yeah that's interesting it's something i mean i guess that that sort of like downtrodden uh You know, they they just like, like we said, they needed to break out some way and have creativity.
1: Well, what happens is rock and roll comes along. And at the same time in the UK, jazz turns into skiffle. And skiffle, um, for those who don't know, uh, is and and there may be some who don't know it's just it was just incredibly basic version of playing jazz with homemade essentially homemade equipment uh like you know a broomstick for uh, w- uh for for a bass you know an overturned bucket for a drum just sure. this idea the stuff that you could busk with and uh combined with seeing and hearing particularly rock and roll arrive from the states uh, everybody who was there Roger Daltrey says it repeatedly the the world just went from black and white to color You know, national service was done away with, I think, um, in 1958. Rationing had continued for a long time after the war, uh, for I think about a decade. And all of a sudden, there are these pop stars from America, these rock and roll stars moving in ways people had never seen, playing the piano in ways people had never seen. They're singing. Uh, Bebop, lula and mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff that doesn't make sense, and is you know is just great fun. And this this generation of post-war kids who don't have particularly close relationships, particularly with their fathers, uh, just dis- have their own world. And attached to that, there's a lot of money in the UK comparatively. Uh, money. I mean, the, the country was was uh, financially very poor and rebuilding, but there were jobs, and this new generation. Uh, was able to get jobs people left school at 14 or 15 years old in the UK they were able to get jobs and with their spending money they suddenly started spending it on clothes and records and uh their parents felt alienated from them a lot of it so you had uh, a generation gap built in as well so Keith yeah. was Keith was among that um he certainly had the love of jazz but he's among those who uh as the world moved into to, to rock and roll and the British had skiffle was just like This is where my heart lies. This is where I'm going to find myself a a way to participate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because you got to rebel and you got to defy and right, right place at the right time. I don't want to say, you know, the war and everything makes for a right place. You know what I mean, though? It's it's, it creates that. But so from what I remember from from uh, what's written is I believe his first encounter with the drums was in the Sea Cadets. Is that correct? I mean, I think he was 14 years old is technically in 1961 when it was stated that he first played the drums. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that is right. And I was actually looking back at the book and like you, it's, uh, it's a long book to, to read (laughs) in one night before doing an interview, but I did write it. So some of it comes back, comes back to me when I, uh, when I reread it. Uh, he, he did talk at one point about how he didn't find the drums, the drums found him. And I thought that was a, 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 a very perceptive quote. On his part, like any yeah. kid, and I, funny enough, I work these days with a lot of young kids in in a music academy, and uh, you see them work their way through instruments until they find the one that 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 they're really meant to be playing. And I think Keith tried out a little bit of uh, the bugle and was probably thinking, you know, can I be a guitarist because that's where the action is? I mean, and and then he just realized, you know, I am very good at hitting things, and uh, the, the the drums will serve me just fine. Yeah, he still had to learn how to play them, but uh, you know we can we can move on to that. Those kind of Sea Cadets things would have been pretty common at the time. Um, there was not a lot of extracurricular options available for kids. Kids were spending a lot of time on the streets, so little things like Sea Cadets, Boy Scouts. I don't think the youth club movement had started. That was more around my generation. If you excuse the uh, the pun, but um, but that <laughs> yeah, it wasn't deliberate. But that uh, that came along, I think, a little later. So if if you did want to do stuff after school with extra more people, something like the Sea Cadets would have made sense.
0: Gotcha. He's not the kind of guy who's going to sit there and take piano lessons with like a little old lady learning, you know, kind of classical music. Drums, Keith Moon. It just it's it is exactly right. He, the drums found him. I mean, it's. It, I can't imagine him playing anything else. He's just an explosion of a person. Um, now, if I'm not mistaken, Carlo Little was that right? Yeah. Was his drum yes. tutor? He said that was a that had to be a big moment, kind of getting a, some formal training.
1: Yeah, and that was actually a section. I, I uh, I'm really glad you asked me because I purposefully uh, reread all of that section, um, but because I know that that's a crucial stage as well. Um, I will say I was delighted to meet Carlo Little. He's like a lot of people in the book, which is now 20 years old. He's no longer with us. Carlo was incredibly influential and um, did not make it uh, famous. In fact, I tracked him down uh, as a hamburger salesman at Wembley Stadium at the Sunday Market. And hmm. uh, uh, initially, he was really not thrilled that I saw him in that capacity. And once I, we got to talk on the phone, and he realised that I you know i traveled all the way across london because that was the only way i could find him <laughs> and uh he gave me a wonderful wonderful interview which i think was integral to the book keith liked to kind of put out the idea that he was self taught and to a large degree he was but um when the when the rock and roll thing happened in the uk you know there was an initial kind of splurge of activity and then much as happened with elvis it all got sanitized very very quickly um people like cliff richard became a family entertainer um uh you you had this guy Larry Parnes um putting out all these like young teenage boys with ridiculous names like Dickie Pride and Vince Eager <laughs> you know the better ones were people like Billy Fury but those were the names that you had and and yet as as will happen there was a core of groups that refused to go along with this sanitization Johnny Kidd and the Pirates important to the Who's history mm. and um uh, screaming lord such and the savages screaming lord such uh, was a legendary character in the uk he ran for parliamentary election continually for the monster raving loony party um <laughs> and awesome. uh, probably probably did not always lose his deposit because people just loved him um that he would just keep running for you know he was sending up the political system <laughs> so that was your front guy um and he put together the hardest rock band behind him um uh, Richie Blackmore was part of his band. Oh, Nicky cool. Hop- Hopkins was part of his band. Mm. And people went to see the group as much for those guys and as much for um, Screaming Lord Such. They went to see Carlo Little. And by all accounts, nobody in the UK kicked that kick drum or hit the toms and the snare as hard as Carlo. And Keith, being Keith, he'd befriended a, a very, very, very straight kid in his neighbourhood. I, I guess you know sometimes that's the kind of foil that you need. Yes. And he'd befriended this uh, this kid, Jerry Evans, who very quickly got a, a job in one of the music shops in central London. And um, th- they went to see the Savages um, at one point at Wembley Town Hall, and Keith uh, just. Found his way backstage, approached Carlo and said, We worship you. And, uh, which a lot of people didn't say, Can you teach me how to drum like you do? And Keith uh, said, so Carlo, he's a, he's a total rock and roll guy. I mean, he's, you know, working class, straight out of the army. He's like, I'm not a teacher. I, I don't know how to teach drums, you know, go learn them yourself. And, and Keith just persisted. Carlo said, all right, come around my house Wednesday night here's the address it's you know it's ten shillings or whatever he or two shillings whatever it was he said sure um i'll I'll see you then and it was the only person Carlo ever taught, and Keith split the cost he he got his friend to stand outside and wait for him and give him like a quarter of the money and then when he when Keith came out of the lessons they would run back to Keith's place and Keith would show his friend. <laughs> <laughs> what what he had learned, and so he uh, wow. he got a lot of that from this guy Carlo Lissel. And I, I would just say, as a sort of biographer, uh, but but I mean, as much as anything, as a fan, I love this. When I read books, I love these unknown stories, the the backstories. The, the this for me is all the exciting stuff. that the, yeah. the, the fact the fact that he worked with somebody like that that it had never come out before, and it's so integral to Keith's development.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean. We have spoken uh, through emails and even before we started about just the most important thing is Keith Moon is an incredible drummer. I mean, he is easily one of the best rock drummers in, in history. And and I think um, it's his uh, I believe in the biography, the BBC thing I was watching, people were talking about how he kind of matched the lead parts with his Tom work and his um, his cymbal work. And it made him stick out rather than being like uh, Charlie Watts or some or even Ringo, who love those guys. Obviously, it's just a different vibe where they were more backbeat rock drummers. As you said before, Keith was right up front. I mean, he was he was very much in the front of the, um, you know, of the music. He was a part of the band.
1: He was. And what we have happening for the next few years of his life before we jump onto The Who, which is obviously where he made his impact, Keith wanted to drum. He's he. You, you mentioned he was born just after the war. Other members of The Who were born during the war. A lot of the British sort of rock royalty of that generation were born towards the end of the war. Keith is a, a year, two years, maybe three years younger than the generation he came up with. He's the little kid that hangs out with the big kids, and the big kids kind of accept him because of his enthusiasm. Because although he's a lunatic, he's serious about what he's doing. Also, if yeah. you're going to have a lunatic around, it's uh, and I yeah, I say that in the nicest possible yes. way. It's handy to have one around who's smaller than you, and you can <laughs> kind of. Sp- keep him in line a little bit i've been in those scenarios i've also been that little kid who was (laughs) taken on and and like taken up by kids three years older than me so that was keith's role and so he joined a lot of bands where he was maybe the youngest kid in the band a succession of them there was the escorts uh was one in particular but then he joined a a a a a covers band called the Beachcombers and mm-hmm. Keith's loved surf music. I- interestingly, the Beachcombers were not actually a surf group. The name suggests it. They were a general covers band. They were semi-professional. Um, They took Keith on when they knew they needed a new and better drum. I think their previous drummer got married and had a kid. And then, you know, that was often it. It might not, have been for you and me for our <laughs> love of music, but it was for for that guy. Keith excelled in that band and they knew they weren't going to keep him forever. And eventually all roads pointed to a group called The Detours, which became The Who. Mm. Uh, the Detours also had an older drummer uh who was married with kids. He was about five years older than them. They were missing the the vital piece of their jigsaw and the beachcombers uh you know they knew the reputation of the detours the the beachcombers had steady jobs and weren't going to give them up. they loved playing, they loved making extra money, they stayed friends uh, all the way through their own lives, but they knew that Keith was destined for bigger things and there's lots of mythology and legend about how Keith joined the who but I almost look at it like if mathematically you lay out this chart of West London and these bands and these clubs. All roads point to Keith joining the Who.
0: Yeah, those are the points that intersect.
1: <laughs> they are going to have to at some point. At some point, either Keith auditions for them on stage or they hear about him and invite him around. Yeah. Something is going to happen and Keith is going to join this band called the Detours. And all of a sudden, Roger, Pete, John enters all they've got the band that they knew they were capable of having. Yeah. Interestingly, by the way, the Beachcombers took the Who's old drummer, the Detour's old drummer. They did it. It wasn't intended as a swap, but it became a swap. As best as I could work it out from what we have of the Who's dates and allowing that it was somewhere around their railway hotel residency. It was April, 1964. And by, by, almost complete coincidence i mean when i was writing the book uh this just seemed very weird it looked like keith actually joined the who the week i was born Um, um you know wow. just one of those weird weird things i think he yeah. did yeah
0: that's awesome wow yeah. from what i've you know again reading the book he was the missing ingredient he was what put them forward i mean it, it seems like he was the because because he's what he was the you know uh uh kind of a pretty boy look a little bit but also with a roughness to him but is is he what pushed the who over the edge into being rock stars yes
1: yeah the who without keith it's not going to it's just i can't even imagine it i cannot yeah. imagine it now you made that uh, uh point be, uh, uh, before with the last sort of question and and i it wasn't really right to uh, confirm it with relation to maybe the Beachcombers or the Escorts, but when Keith joined the Who, the di- the dynamics of the Who, the most the, you know, I love the Who. Uh, they're the band that has meant the most to me in my in my life. Um, I was a fan such a young age, uh, and I was listening to their sixties music when I was ten years old in the seventies. 11 I went to see them for the first time when I was 12. Um this this band meant everything to me. What I love is these groups where the personalities and the dynamics were are a little or a lot off-kilter. And so with The Who, Pete Townsend is this sort of rhythm guitarist more than the lead guitarist. It's actually a reason I I love The Who. Uh John Entwistle is the lead guitarist but on bass. Yeah. And so you you've you got you the, 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 so Pete is almost the the drummer. You know, John is almost a lead guitarist, but he's the bass player, and this frees up Keith to be like almost like a lead guitarist. And there's a lot of jazz in here, and I know your show covers all aspects of drumming. And we can talk about Keith's jazz influences, particularly sure. the big the big band players, the the Gene Kruppers, the Eric Delaney's, yep. um Lewis Bilson. Uh, if I've got all those names right, all of those people, and then particularly the surf drummers um, and the surf music. But he brought a lead uh, musician's inventiveness to the Who. Now, now Keith just thought the drums should be a lead instrument. And as far as he was concerned, he should be at the front of the stage. And actually, while we're at it, why can't he sing the songs as well? I mean, Keith really had that mentality. But what <laughs> I what I most love about the Who, the personalities, you know, the, the dynamics are just always fascinating. And a lot of people focus on the rivalry and the lifelong friendship, a very complicated re- relationship between Pete and Roger, who are the only two surviving members now. Sure. But to me... The, the most enjoyable relationship. You know, Keith had a lovely friendship with John Entwistle, but he had an interaction with Pete where Keith actually worshipped Pete. He worshipped the ground that Pete walked on. He knew that he was with a genius. Yeah. He never doubted it. He utterly worshipped Pete. Uh, Pete loved Keith <laughs> up to a point. I think there was a point towards getting closer to Keith's death where Pete was finding it very hard work, but he loved Keith. But what... What you hear on record, but then what you particularly see on stage, is an interaction, a, a one of those second sense just like between Pete and Keith, where Pete is kind of like the rhythm, and Keith is playing the fills and, the, and sort of leading, yeah. and they understand each other. And similarly, uh, it's Pete's songs, Roger sang the, the majority of them. Uh, Keith knew enough about the meaning of the songs and the words that he was emoting the lyrics with the drums. We're so used to sort of, you know, somebody singing "I'm sad" and then the guitar wails, you know, like a like a nice, you know, just bendy note behind, or the strings come in. Yeah. Keith could do that on the drums, and I mean, I liken it, you know, you just hear, I can't explain the Who's first single, and he he sums it up. He's he's got this little there's a pause and a little drum blistering little like you know snare roll and he's summing up this feeling of i can't explain it goes from there onwards somehow his drums always seem to capture the mood of the song
0: and there's a special like you said it's like a it's like a unexplainable connection while they're playing and and i mean the the age difference kind of makes it a little bit of a big brother little brother type of feel where you know with Pete where They love each other. But like you said, your little brother can drive you nuts sometimes, especially if it's Keith Moon. (laughs) (laughs) It's like kind of kind of pushes you a little bit uh, to the to the limit. But, you know, one thing I think that's interesting, too, in the history is that we talk about the smashing of the instruments. And if I'm not mistaken, it was said that uh, Pete smashed his guitar first, Pete Townsend. And I believe in the documentary, they were talking about how he smashed it because a photographer was there or something. And then they said the photographer missed it. And they are like, do it again, we'll buy you a new guitar. And then after that, I guess Keith took that really to heart and then started smashing up his drums all the time. And that became a gimmick. I mean, that became like a thing that people expected to see, right?
1: Yeah, which is which is fascinating. And I don't think I've ever, I've, for all the number of times I've seen a Hoorin concert, I don't think I saw that. I, I know that the first time I went to see them, I was you know, so looking forward to this uh, smashing up of the equipment—something that my parents could not understand—I, <laughs> I, I understood it perfectly, but we can discuss that if uh, in 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 more detail. Yeah, basically, I think the, the the history has it. Pete did it once by accident with a low roof at that same railway hotel, by the way, sure. where Keith uh, supposedly joined the band. And um, the next week he did it. Keith was like, "Well." You know, I'm not going to be outdone by by Pete, so he started kicking over the drums. Drums are pretty hardy instruments; they're more hardy than a rickenbacker 12 strings, that's for sure. Yeah. So Keith could afford to to kick his drums around most of the time. You can just set the drums back up. I mean, if you put a, a skin through, you know, it it costs something, but it's not the same as Pete looking at a broken neck on a rickenbacker and going, "Whoops." Yeah, you know, how do I fix that one? So yeah, it became a part of the show, and I mean, I love the footage of it. Um There, there, there were a couple of times you see him doing it later in life where he he looks a little huh, very angry and out of control. And it doesn't look like there's a joy in it. But I think initially Pete was able to justify what he was doing because he'd been to art school and there was this guy, Gustav Metzer, who had destroyed his art. And Pete had this whole pop art mentality he could intellectualize. For for Keith, it was just hooligan behavior. And <laughs> you know, Britain was full of hooligans. Um they all loved it. Uh I, I think everybody who felt that uh the that Britain was a repressive society, uh, which it was um uh, worshipped Uh, i'd love that idea they were just you know to take something uh that's that's you know has value and devalue it and to maybe anger your parents and the older generation at the same time while making this wonderful racket uh i you know people people loved it yeah sure it became their calling card i mean i think um the film of them at Monterey is a good example where they just uh that was rented equipment I do believe I think it was on a Slingerland kit that that night and uh they hated that equipment so they took extra joy in destroying it <laughs> at Monterey.
0: <laughs> I mean it's a thing and speaking of the gear I mean he's famously a uh plays premier drums was that always the case I mean that from what I've learned with British you know epi- focused episodes there'd be Heyman, there'd be Premier there'd be a few but Premier was really the very popular brand in the day. Um, he had his pictures of Lily Kit. But um, was he typically a premier player most of his, his career?
1: Yeah, most of his professional career. Sorry, I was about to just look back in the book. So the, who was smashing up so much gear? Yeah, we have to talk about their management, Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp one of those combos of managers you know these days we all know that the music business is more of a business there's room for entrepreneurs vengalis characters there were more of them in the 60s managers were like the musicians they were crazy they were saw it as art they were doing stuff nobody had done before and kit lambert was upper class his father was a famous conductor chris stamp was working class his brother was terence stamp a famous actor uh, two distinctly different characters, but they would have needed to go out and find a way to get equipment, and so they got a sponsorship from Premier Drums because who were breaking it all the time. So it's like, well, you know, maybe maybe we can get some sponsorship here. And yes, Keith stuck by Premier Drums, and the pictures of Lily Kit is world famous. It's been replicated, so you know, officially in, in more recent times at the point that I was doing the book. And, and when I was doing the book, like the internet was in its infancy. And I, I recall, I only emailed about a quarter of, uh, to a third of the people I interviewed at most. Most of it was done through phone calls and letters. Yeah. Um, but at that point it was still very uncertain who owned different parts of the original kit. Yeah. Uh, and those parts were going for auction, you know, big money at auction. And yeah, yeah, Keith, Keith had that relationship with premier drums. He built the kit over the years. I don't mean he hand built it. I mean, he built it in size until there were far more drums than anybody could hit in one (laughs) setting. Uh, There there was some footage from the mid mid seventies where you're like, You have to, you're five foot six. I mean, you would have to stand up and stand on your drum stool and lean over to get to the furthest away drum. But God bless you. It does look pretty over the top. This episode is brought to you by Sweetwater. I'm a
0: very longtime customer of Sweetwater and I've always loved the huge selection, great customer service and low prices. So, when I got the opportunity to partner with them, it was a no brainer. Sweetwater sent over this awesome new Tascam Mixcast 4 for me to check out and share with you guys. This is a great product for anyone who wants an all in one podcast workstation that is extremely well built, has four TRS XLR combo microphone inputs, and four headphone outputs with independent volume controls. The huge LED touchscreen is my favorite part of this, and it makes it super easy to navigate the MixCast 4. Check out the link in the description of this episode to see the new Drum History gear page on Sweetwater, where uh, you can check out the Tascam MixCast 4 and a lot of the other drum and studio gear I use on Sweetwater. So thanks to Sweetwater for sponsoring this episode. This episode is brought to you by Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street, Nashville, Tennessee. Call 615-383-8343 or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. One thing that we should should note as we go is um, by the age of uh, 19, uh, he had a daughter, correct? And he was married at that point, which is pretty young. I mean, I can't imagine. I'm sure people out there listening have kids very, very young. I know when I was 19, I wouldn't have been doing very well with a, um, with a kid. And, but also on top of that, you're a really a budding rock star. You're becoming famous. That's tough. I don't, I don't know how much time he was able to devote to, um, his, his young daughter and young family. It's kind of, he's being torn in two directions. Really?
1: He was, he was being torn in two directions. He had met this girl, um, Kim, and Kim Carrigan she was a uh just a beautiful young thing that showed up on the scene um Rod Stewart tried to go after her as well, and uh Keith made it absolutely clear that she was his and by all accounts, they just were utterly utterly in love with each other and um yes she got pregnant at a young age and keith did what seemed correct at the time and and married her and uh, this was right around the time that the who were taking off so on one hand the who's management of promoting him as you mentioned at the beginning is kind of the pin-up much to roger's uh dis- dislike um but keith was the pretty boy i mean roger's incredibly good looking but in his in his correct way as a working class tough guy look yeah Keith was the, the pinup. Keith was the one who could have been in, in, in one of the pop groups of the time if he wasn't so, so talented just for his looks. Uh, he, so on one hand, the management is promoting him as a pinup, you know, g- girls, he's available. On the other hand, he's trying to actually live with uh at first in parents houses but then they get their own place with a baby daughter and a very 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 you know his girlfriend's younger than him kim his wife is younger than him at a very very young age and she devotes herself to mandy which is the daughter but um mandy's own memories of keith are not are not pleasant they're not easy she's talked about it she's written about it and um, keith was not a good father and he would sort of play with her for half an hour and get bored and it got tougher as as it went along and of course we've got to be honest and kim knew this you know um sure you've got this beautiful girl at home but you're also 19 20 21 and you go to america and the girls are throwing themselves at you so there's not a lot of fidelity going on either
0: no no i mean literally it, it could not be a harder situation for a nineteen-year-old. Good-looking rock star. I don't... I mean, if anyone was put in that position, I think they'd have a hard time. Um, But it's interesting. Now, as we go... And we're trying to... You know, Keith is a... He's famous for his antics. Moon the loon, as as we've said, which, you know, we we like to keep, as, as Tony and I have said earlier... He's a great drummer. He's a human. He's got a family. But was he kind of battling his demons, his early demons at this point with drinking and stuff? Or was that sort of in the works?
1: Sure. You know, one of the uh, sort of tragedy on learning all this at the point that he joined The Who, and he was, he was very young at the point that he joined The Who, uh, not, not quite 18. He was not drinking. And uh, this was a pub culture. He was playing pubs and ballrooms and um, places where the audience was frequently drunk. The beachcombers, you know, don't like when he, when he came to the beachcombers, he wasn't drinking. And, he joined a very over-the-top band. I mean, for all the fact that Pete and John are perfectly sort of middle-class in their own right, Roger was really the the, the working-class guy. But the Who were excessive in every ways and means. And um, the scene, the mod scene, which is incredibly important, uh, the mod scene sort of lived on uppers. The idea that, These working class kids I was mentioning who had money would, you know, earn their money. It was good money, and they wore smart suits to work, and they made them even smarter for the weekend. They stayed up all weekend, going to clubs, dancing to Black American music, dancing to the likes of The Who that were playing that music for them, cover versions, and um, there were uppers everywhere, and Keith just got really, really into that, and he started drinking a lot, and it was disappointing... Uh, surprising to me and disappointing that people around him, like the you know, his family and the Who were having problems with his um, what 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 definitely became addictions even as early as when they were doing Tommy, which is remarkable mm. because the drumming on Tommy is one of the most incredible drumming performances you'll hear in rock music. But yeah. He's 21, 22 at that point at most. Um, He's recording Tommy when he's 21, 22. And he is already, you know, people are aware that he's got problems. So I had thought that kicked in much more in the early mid 70s, but it it kicked in quick. I mean, he's a small guy and he's a pretty thin guy when he starts out. And there's not a lot of place to put all this drink and drugs. And he was the kind of personality that if somebody wanted to buy him a drink, he would say double brandy. He's the kind of person who'd like to buy everyone a drink. He's the kind of person that would say, you know, you can't leave till I leave. Let's, you know, let's sample every whiskey or brandy behind the counter. And he was the kind of guy that if somebody said, here, you want some leapers and showed him a packet, he'd just put his hand in, yeah, and and just throw a bunch down his neck. That's just who he was.
0: Yeah, I mean, he clearly had like a, uh, like, like you said, nowadays things, mental health things are now far more diagnosed. He clearly had a serious addiction problems. And I remember kind of looking through your book and watching the documentary and people were saying that, like he tried to work out a almost scientific balance of being able to keep things going seven days a week or, and someone said too, he was one drink away from being drunk again because it was such mm. a high level of alcohol that, you know, he'd kind of come down a little bit, have a double brandy or whatever, and then be right back to where he was, uh, which yeah it's he's young though he can you know you can kind of get away with with that when you're 20 18 19 20 years old whereas yes you
1: can yes you can and i did a lot of that when i was younger too and i've i've written a memoir or two and i've looked back and just been, how did i do that but you you could you could and and you you can't sustain it and keith was unable to to sustain it but there was a lot of fun to be had along along the way and i don't mind Talking about Keith's antics, as long as we you know have them within the framework of this explosive live band that I would say uh, at their peak were the best live band in the world. Yeah. Um, and Keith, you know, there's only three musicians on stage. I mean, Roger bangs a tambourine a little bit, but there's basically three musicians. And if you look at um, footage from the early seventies. Tanglewood's a good one, but there's a whole bunch of them. I and mean, if you listen to the various live records from that time, be it live at Leeds or the Isle of Wight or something, you can, you, there are points when they're off just doing their freeform stuff. And, you know, Rogers, maybe banging the tambourine, twirling his mic. You're just like, how is that much noise coming from three people? And Seriously, it's, yeah, it's 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 truly astonishing. But along the way, I mean, you know, Keith, Keith, um, we talk about destroying his drum kits when they were on the Smothers Brothers in 1967. Big break for them. Mm-hmm. It was said that it was agreed that the, at the finale of My Generation, which they were miming to a, a pre-recorded version they made, um that there would be you know a couple of smoke explosions and um you know it would all look great. Keith managed to convince somebody to just keep putting more and more gunpowder in his drum kit, and it basically blew up. The the stage set i it's it's there on film it's it's in, it's at the beginning of the kids are all right movie pete townsend still to this day says it's part of what turned him deaf apparently betty davis fainted in mickey <laughs> rooney's arms or something like that it's you know th- these things are actually hilarious because i mean it happens on television and yeah. you know tommy smothers has to roll with it and pete has to roll with it and i mean there's just all kinds of stuff goes on. Uh Man. there's another another amazing interview with uh, Russell Harty on British TV where uh, Keith just starts stripping down. And it's it's you know you can see how scared the host is because Keith <laughs> does decide to go the whole way and take off his underpants. He's just bored of the interview <laughs> process with the other members of the who. So Man. Russell's trying to ask all these serious questions and keith just just like it, it, you know serious smearious you know, don't don't ask me to be on the show if you want to keep this serious. He likes
0: i mean he is okay with chaos, I feel like he's he he doesn't mind things being absolutely chaotic and kind of enjoys being the like the center of like like almost making straight people you know what I mean like kind mm. of business minded people uncomfortable like that's seems like he gets joy out of it really to to kind of
1: yeah stir think, things up I think again, we can go back to those those roots and that post war culture which was so staid and You can understand that older generation just being like, we've, we've lived through, some of them have lived through two world wars at this point. And they're just like, we can't, you know, we can't go through this again. Just give us this quiet life. And then their kids let them down by discovering, well, the Americans go and ruin it by, by coming out with little Richard and Chuck Berry and then Elvis and everybody. It's like, (laughs) what is going on? And these, these kids just, you know, they took great pleasure in shaking up the older society. They, they really did. And yeah, the Who's My Generation. It may be been talked about too much, but it's it's relevant. There was a message that was there. Um uh, Pete was really saying, I hope I die be- rather than become like you, I would sooner die. That was yeah. what he you know, he's like everybody, you know, you're all old. You're old people before your time. And um, you know, that that I mean, Keith obviously didn't become that, although he did become physically old, you know, well before his yeah. own own time. And that's tragic in its in its own way. Many, many great records made in the meantime, of course.
0: Yeah. Um, So just to to touch on a couple things as we kind of move forward here. So I I have written down that that Peter, I believe Dougal Butler, Mm. was his personal assistant, which I don't know if I'd want to be Keith Moon's personal assistant in charge of him. I think Dougal, as they called him, uh, really took on a lot of the weight of dealing with, with Keith.
1: He did, because Kim certainly couldn't do it. And a lot of these rock stars had their kind of man Friday um they much more than a gopher much more than a gopher this was this, you know a lot of musicians had that that buddy you see it in other forms of music as well uh Dougal to his credit Dougal is still with us Um, he wrote one book about Keith before my book came out which was a very funny book uh Dougal kept Keith alive uh Keith did not die under Dougal's watch um yeah. Dougal had been fired many a time and he quit a few times and he was not with Keith, uh, at the final couple of months. And uh, that's a, that's a whole part of the story as well. And Dougal's love for Keith is enormous, but God, no, who would want that job? But, uh, he was maybe the only person who, who, who could do it. And, and the periods when he had had enough and he did quit or he was fired are periods where Keith uh, gets in worse trouble than when he's with. Dougal. Dougal could always somehow roll with him, do the long nights with him, have the fun with him and still make sure, not so much that Keith got to bed on time, but that he woke up in the morning or the afternoon. But the main thing being that he woke up, which he didn't do that final night.
0: Yeah. And there was a story that was, I think, Dougal talking about Keith Moon was driving home, of course, you know, drinking and partying. And he was going like 120 or 30 miles an hour. And he said, he was like, Keith, you need to slow down and instead of just kind of going fifth, fourth third, second, you know, a stick shift, it, he said that he put it into first, locked the wheels, rolled the car, and then uh, I guess they were okay, and I think he said that Keith was just like laughing about it like,
1: yeah, I mean, anything that didn't kill Keith, you know he found hilarious pretty much, yeah, yeah, and um, he was able to laugh he was able to laugh at a lot of this stuff it's it's a ridiculous time in music history. It's not one that can be repeated and i write a lot in this book because this was something i i kind of knew going into it but i really felt it when i was in it is the these i talk about at one point with the managers as well that this was uncharted territory and they were almost like a combination of explorers and pirates like setting sail on the seas To uncharted waters, causing you know maybe they're like Vikings. I mean, they're they're they're, (laughs) you know causing mayhem. There's a lot of pillaging that's going on. You know, there nobody. There's no blueprint for this. There is nowadays. There's no blueprint. Um, Initially, every band is getting ripped off, left, right, and center. Once the managers eventually kind of you know manage to get their artists some money, suddenly they're richer than anybody had ever ever imagined all of these people just thought six months and will be will be old news and now now in 1971 Keith is buying an estate in the stockbroker belt but not just any estate being Keith he's bought this ridiculous pyramid house off a movie director and <laughs> so, so cool. now now he's living in a a sort of glass pyramid with five different Areas to it, um, yeah. and throwing parties. And there's a pub at the bottom of the road, and he takes the hovercraft to the pub. But yeah, they're off. They're off in uncharted, uncharted waters musically. Nobody had ever done stuff like Tommy before. Before that, they'd never done anything like the Who sell out before. You know, people made singles. The record company would package up a bunch of songs for a Christmas. You know, uh, not a Christmas album per se, but something that people could give each other at Christmas and um they were entertainers you know and the beatles changed that and then along came you know the bands we know the 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 who that in some sort of order the stones the kinks did the who and they turned it into more of an art form and none of this had been done before and drummers hadn't drummed like this before either
0: yeah i mean so there's no i mean keith kind of gave a a limit of like so everyone can look at it and go okay don't go that far like that's that's the limit so we we can pull back a little bit so now there is they they did create the blueprint um but even the even the hotel smashing which is famous i mean it's just a whole thing i thought it was uh it was interesting that it was talked about how keith was proud of it and one thing that he did that was kind of silly was they said he would loosen all of the screws in the beds when he left so people would yeah. get on it the next guest who's probably just a businessman or a family and the bed would fall apart. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> like,
1: yeah. Keith is a prankster. And I think there's a massive difference between smashing something up in a rage, which certainly happened at times and uh, deciding because you're never going to pass this way again, you're probably going to pay for it anyway. And you, you know, you're only young once and you're a rock star. You set about just doing crazy stuff, you know, like, they. Like, I mean, I would not. I I, I care deeply for for all animals, but you know, Keith and John thought it great to leave piranhas in people's bathtubs. You know, that was the kind of thing that 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 they would do as a parting gift in a hotel. I know. Well, let's let's fill the bathtub with water and put piranha in there. That was surprise. <laughs> Whoever's got to clean out the room, let's take all the screws out of something. Um, there is a story that I, I. The more I think about this, I I'm amazed that I I've I've heard the guy on the other side of the wall say that it was true, but that Keith needed to get something and the person was asleep next door. So he just... Got one of his tools and just started you know working a hole through the through through the wall like bit by bit by bit just like a a prisoner escaping <laughs> um the waterbed story is particularly amusing when uh, keith uh, tries to get the waterbed out of his room and it floods the elevator oh my God. um that's you know that's a great one there's uh there's a lot of creativity to an awful lot of of, of what he does Um throwing cherry bombs out of hotel windows in New York City tonight that to Martin Luther King's been assassinated. Probably not a good idea, not a oh, creative no. one. But no. Keith would not have understood uh, American civil rights. It it it, uh, it would have been like he wouldn't have he just he wouldn't have had that big picture.
0: No Interesting. There's lots of them. And I was thinking about this. I was like, we could talk about those all day, but I think it'd be fun for people who are um, listening or watching this on YouTube. They should comment their favorite Keith Moon stories. And uh, I think that would be neat to kind of read what other people think about that. Um, although,
1: although I would just preface uh, that they need to verify that uh, you know that they happened. Because when yes. I researched this book... Um some of the some of the biggest myths about Keith are exactly that. And and I will say now because I do not want to see this in the YouTube comments, Keith never drove a car into a holiday in swimming pool on his twenty-first birthday. If he had, there would be pictures. Believe it or not, we had cameras in nineteen sixty seven. Yeah, there would be pictures. And and when you're throwing a twenty first birthday party, you know, that I mean, it, it didn't happen. A lot of other things didn't happen, but I found there were more things that did that hadn't been uh, yeah. hadn't been known about and and some of them were pretty hilarious and some of them were pretty frightening as well
0: no that's funny but i did hear that on his 21st birthday he was in america on tour it said that they they re- they got 100 birthday cakes made to smash in the room uh it said keith tripped on the cake fell and knocked out his teeth um mm-hmm. on a table and had was upset because the party had the end to end because he literally just smashed out his teeth uh yeah so
1: yeah. yeah, that's what happened to him. It was with Herman's Hermits. The Who were uh, famous. famously after Monterey, they got put on a package tour with Herman's Hermits. Uh, Jimi Hendrix was sent out to open for the Monkees. You suspect that had Jimi Hendrix and The Who um, liked each other a little bit more. Uh, they were sharing sort the of management. The, the Who's managers had started track records, and Jimi Hendrix was on that. Mm-hmm. And The Who were, were very worried that their managers were... Uh, yeah, we talked about fidelity earlier. Um, but anyway, they were opening for Herman's Hermits, um, destroying their gear every night, and then hermits would have to follow them. I tracked down most of Herman's Hermits. They all verified that Keith slipped on the birthday cake, knocked out his tooth. I think one of the, the hermits went with him to the dentist. The party did carry on, but Keith, <laughs> Keith missed the rest of it. Um, the hermits largely wish they could have been the who. I mean, they, that was one of those moments in people's careers where they're like, what are we doing? This is the future. The who, the who is what we should have had the guts to do, but they were a very, very, very young group, Herman's Hermits. Yeah. And you know, they didn't have the balls to do what the who did, but they loved the who, and they loved having Keith on tour with them.
0: Yeah. So moving forward here, cause we, uh, we only have yeah. Tony for kind of a limited time. I want to say in 69, I believe was when it said that uh, Pete Townsend kind of grew, and I may be wrong on that date, correct me, but it said he, he got sick of the antics being known for these antics but um i believe i heard that that uh keith still wanted to party he still wanted to smash his instruments he didn't have that art school mind uh so things were were basically changing at that point away from that uh you know shocking destroying things antics is that Fair to say. Yeah, there's,
1: there's a lot of truth to that. Um, Pete's manager, Kit Lambert, they had a very good uh, relationship. And uh, Kit was the one who encouraged Pete to write first a mini opera, first to write a quick one while he's away, then to do the Who sell out, then that all turned into Tommy. And I think Kit recognized early that Pete was actually a composer in the old-fashioned sense. And yes. I, I will argue if you, you, know, you can show me your def- dictionary definition of genius, and I'm pretty sure Pete falls under it. Um, and Keith, Keith's a lot of things, but he's not an, an, an intellectual genius. But where it all comes together, if you want to talk about that, um, some people think something like, um, I can see for miles is Keith's watershed moment. I know Roger Daltrey cites that. I I do as well. A lot of the Who sell out. I mean, I love the single substitute is kind of my favorite song of all time. Um, and Keith's drumming on that is amazing. You can even hear him scream in the middle when he goes to attack his kit. Um, <laughs> but Tommy, Tommy to me is where it comes together more so than Who's Next. Who's Next is the classic Who album. Mm-hmm. To jump ahead, Glenn Johns deserves all credit for getting the best out of Keith on that. He let Keith be Keith, but in time uh tommy is an oddly unfinished record it was meant to have strings on it and they ran out of time and money and it's much more acoustic than people realize that the live shows were this powerhouse trio quartet um, and and was phenomenal but the, the, the actual album is pretty quiet and it's symphonic and Keith's drumming there is he understands at core. He can laugh all he wants later about, you know, none of us knew what Tommy was about and even Pete, but he gets the story. And from the moment he hits the first drum, uh, actually a, a little bit late on at the beginning of Overture, uh, he is part of this sort of like uh, incredible they are an orchestra, just yeah. just what they're doing. And things like Sparks, which Who fans will know, is um, where those themes come back as an instrumental. There's an, also a longer instrumental, an underture. And Sparks and underture are sort of interchangeable, but the the Sparks theme was carried on a lot live. I think that's some of the best drumming you will ever hear because you're hearing an instrumental track that's taking on themes from across a double album. Um, and you're hearing a drummer whose ability to supply the tension or to keep the tension or release the tension, Pete would not be free to do what he does without having a drummer who can who can like it's ebb and flow. It's like peaking and and yeah. valleying. And uh, for all that people, rightly, rightly so, when they look at Barbara O'Reilly, won't get fooled again. Maybe I can see for miles. I would point you to maybe Sparks or um, Go to the Mirror on Tommy and and really hear the genius of Keith in in that the, the artistry. I think the other songs I just referenced are more like rock drumming, done brilliantly, but there's an artistry of his drumming in Tommy that to me is... Probably the peak of him in the studio. And I may have to go off and think about that because certainly, you know, who's next is just astonishing. But there's something about Tommy, that breakthrough album, that showed that rock bands could be artists, could be, sure. could write some form of operetta and, and do it well. That's yeah. the point for me.
0: And you can, I mean, people's favorite songs change all the time, you know, but I mean, he really is a, a genius and a very artistic drummer. And as you said, as a breakthrough, uh, it, it seems like Tommy set them on financial, you know, explosion where he mm. could buy his, I believe his Tara or Tara, yeah, his crazy Tara. pyramid yeah. house, which is just wild. But um, he and then when the Tommy film came out, uh, from what I heard, he enjoyed acting. He liked mm being a thespian you know what i mean obviously he kind of played himself a little bit because he's you know he's keith moon what else he's not going to play something that's really out of his realm too too much but he enjoyed acting and i and oliver reed they were famous friends right
1: yeah i spent time with oliver reed for the book that was uh pretty much the most memorable interview i conducted i actually i was in england doing research and i flew to ireland to to meet him um uh oliver reed was another of those people who basically insisted you matched him drink for drink um so by by the end of an afternoon in a hotel bar i was much the worse for wear but (laughs) oliver oliver loved keith uh oliver died a sort of you know his own sort of drunken drunken death um but he loved keith but he he pointed out yes keith i think keith loved being the center of attention so of course you know be a film star um and i think that he had Elements that could have made him a great film star, but Oliver said one of the most important things to me that that Keith could not be a successful actor because he could not keep still. Yeah. And Oliver Reed, who um had a uh, Oliver Reed had a you know a dark side to him. Maybe uh, maybe a nastier streak. Some people said that you know there was a nasty streak to Oliver Reed. I um and some people said Keith got that later in life. So we'll we'll call them equals. But Oliver Reed is a was an actor first. Yeah. And he's like, you know, that art that you learn as an actor where you have to keep still. Um like like meditation. You have to not move. Keith could not do that. And that was the difference. And so yes, Keith, Keith's limited acting career, although it's great, was limited to playing versions of Keith Moon.
0: Sure. Yeah, but that's what people expect. You don't want him to play some very deep role. Um But I I was unaware of Oliver Oliver Reed because it's after my generation, but Mm. I I had remembered him here in America growing up kind of in the 90s and 2000s from the movie Gladiator.
1: Well, that's, yeah, that's the one he died on the set of. He had a
0: heart attack, correct?
1: Well, yeah, he took the crew out drinking and, um, you know, drank them all under the table and then didn't make it through the next day. So uh, that was, you know, Oliver, Oliver Reed just got more years out of living like that than Keith. He was a bigger, he was a bigger guy you know the interesting thing is he missed Keith. he really really missed Keith, but he also you know he was able to actually say you know could could I see Keith now you know I mean he actually really was sort of opining to me you know what would Keith have been could he have been he clearly yeah. they they there was a lot of love Larry Hagman's another actor who loved Keith, he was happy to talk to me for the for the book um there was a lot of love for Keith among some of the uh you know the most famous and craziest people we've we've known they all loved him Alice Cooper they all Ringo they all loved Keith yeah
0: yeah he's I mean, he's everyone's little brother it seems like it's all fun but you did say before that there was dark sides to him and i believe um i heard you say in that BBC documentary that there was um he he took everything out on his his uh wife Kim i believe he said he he broke her nose a few times i mean it's all fun and games. It's it's, I feel like in those moments you're it's, it's all a party until you get home and you're kind of meanest to the people you're closest to, if that makes sense, because they kind of, you know, you see them all the time and he seems like he took a lot out on her. Um, And he didn't really know how to be a dad. Like you said, it was just kind of fun, you know, for a couple minutes and then he wanted to move on and go do something else. Um, But they got divorced in 1974, I believe. Right.
1: Yeah, close enough. I'll take yeah, your word sure. on that. Yeah, yeah. It's right round. <laughs> <Yeah. that>. No, <laughs> it's, right around, it's right. around then. I'm right being around
0: approximate. Then. But but um then he met a new girlfriend, right? Which is yeah. um Annette. Yeah. And he, they seem to love each other very much as well.
1: Yeah, now that now you've got a, a bigger age gap though. So um uh, Kim managed to escape from Keith earlier than that. I think the divorce took some took some time. Uh Keith never got over losing Kim. He lost, her uh, ultimately, to Ian McLagan of the Small Faces. Hmm. Uh, interestingly, his drumming stool after he died went to Kenny Jones of the Small Faces. And I have sort of wondered, the only, uh, the only other group I could ever see Keith being a member of was the Small Faces. He was small, um, you know, short. And yep. he, he fitted their mayhem personality more so than Kenny Jones. Um, and they were rivals on the London mod scene, but the small faces were more kind of East London. So there was a geographical dif- difference to some extent. Sure. Um, you know, Kim had gotten out earlier. Keith had other, you know, relationships and affairs. There were two things that, that marked Keith. And one was that he was uh, reportedly behind the wheel of his Rolls Royce when, um, I, 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 I'm just pausing in case it was a Bentley, but it's one of those cars that uh, unfortunately um, went over his, dr- his actually his driver um, who was attempting to hear a, a clear a gang of skinheads out of the way who were attacking Keith's car because Keith went and opened a hotel or opened a nightclub and stayed around after it got ugly. And who, regardless of exactly how it happened, Keith took the blame, went to court for it, um, never got over it he killed his man Friday he killed his you know trusted man Friday he was responsible for the guy 's death. Wow. he possibly drove over the guy 's body and then Kim um then he got worse and then uh, Kim left him and he never got over that. He spent a couple of years in l a um not the right place, but he—it was the dream. It was his pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Of course, he didn't find the pot of gold. He comes back, but he does meet this younger girl. She's a bit of a Kim lookalike, except it's a decade later now. If she's from, whether I go say she's from Stockholm, and uh, she really loves Keith. I mean, she's a model. She's on the scene. Um uh, famously uh she shows up at a nightclub with a with a boyfriend, and Keith takes such a liking to her that he has the boyfriend thrown out. So then he offers to take her home. <laughs> she said, What yeah. happened? I I came with somebody. He's like, Oh, don't worry, darling, I had him thrown out. Um Bold and move. she oh she that's one way to do it, isn't it? One way yeah. to get rid of the competition. She um she loves him. She loves him dearly, uh but she's not in she's not on the level of of Kim but they she's with him the last night of his life and um there's debate as to whether he truly p- proposed to her or not, but certainly he did tell people he was planning on marrying her
0: mm. wow, one thing I think is interesting um that was mentioned is uh in the the l a days when he was living in um you know uh i guess f- close to malibu somewhere somewhere around there a couple miles away. Uh, this is just crazy. It said he lived next door to Steve McQueen uh, and Steve McQueen was on the Manson hit list, Charles Manson, and they said that they found Manson followers sleeping under Keith Moon's house and they broke into um, Keith's house. I believe uh, Dougal, his you know assistant, said that and there was just crazy drug use going on and that whole it just it was a chaotic. It wasn't a good time.
1: Yeah, um, it was interesting. I've been reading Elton John's, uh, autobiography this, this, this current week. Um, as an aside, he loved Keith. I told you at the beginning, they were from the same area. He, he does say, uh, Keith, like his friends started dying and he said Keith Moon died from an overdose of being Keith Moon, which I thought was a wonderful way to put it. Uh, I yeah. wish I'd had that for the book actually. Yeah. Uh, um, but I think he also writes about something about the, the, the Manton crew showing up I mean he 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 notes that that much as you know Elton lived out there for a little bit as well now there was a darkness I think to California, and I think what he says in in his book is that even though the Manson murders took place way before Elton was even a star, five years later, there was still an a fear born of that, an undercurrent of of darkness and fear that 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 city never got over that, which is very very, very interesting. Yeah, there's a couple of famous stories about Keith, Keith and Steve McQueen. I, I read one of them on the internet the other day that quoted from my book extensively. I was like, okay, you know, wherever you can get your copy, <laughs> yeah. wherever you can get your uh, clickbait. Um, yeah, I mean, Steve McQueen was, a, was basically drew his line in the sand. And it's like, my property, your property. Line in the sand, do not cross. Yeah, Uh, which was a great disappointment for Keith because he was used to being that puppy that bounds up to people. And he would befriended everybody from Oliver Reed to Larry Hagman and a lot more people besides. But Steve McQueen was not going to take it.
0: Steve McQueen's very tough, gruff American race cars and things. And then you get little Keith Moon jumping around. But it's a shame because I think he's a pleaser. He's a people pleaser, Keith. And he wanted to be liked by people. And that's let's party. Let's do it. I wanted to keep going. But um I mean we're getting close to the end here, but I, I would say I've heard that he would he would have these huge ups and then he would stay in bed for five days, three days, two and just be down and then come back up. And it's a lot I think, emotionally.
1: I think that's not an unfamiliar story, and and before he got sober, uh, Elton John seems to be doing much the same. You know, the the, the, the drug use and the drinking becomes greater, bigger. And that means your downs are going to be bigger and longer. So, you know, Keith would party harder and then it would take longer to recover. And you yeah. you hit on something there that's ex- that I think, you know, is at the core of Keith's personality. He did want to be loved. Um, a lot of what he was doing was attention-seeking and a sort of fear that he wasn't loved, which is ridiculous because people adored Keith. But it's not uncommon for people in the public eye, and I think musicians maybe even more so than film stars, to have incredible inferiority complexes. I mean, you know, know, they wake up and they see themselves on the front of a newspaper and yet somehow, you know, they think nobody loves them. And uh, Keith, interestingly, often would fall back on this idea that he'd never quite joined the Who, quite never been made an official member. I mean, he got his equal royalties from from recording, as far as I know. But a little like sort of... There was a little bit of that with Ringo as well, like the latecomers to the group. They both sure. of them were the missing link that those groups needed. But there was yeah. a little bit of uh, of of um, I'm, I'm never quite sure that I was told I'm part of this family. And and yeah, I mean, but just to confirm your point, now unfortunately there were times, particularly in in Los Angeles, and Dougal was part of that, where you know maybe. Maybe just the curtains would be drawn for for two three days on end, and then Keith would just gradually get his energy back and go right. Let's you know, let's go rev up, rev ourselves up again, and out they would go and start yeah. the whole process again. And gradually, people, particularly in LA, just stopped running with him. They were like, "We can't keep up with you, Keith." I mean, yeah. you know, they, he'd call on people, and they'd be like, "No, nah, not tonight, Keith. Not not tonight. It's yeah. my yeah, body needs a
0: break." That's rough. Well, well, his his uh. As you said before, Dougal would not he, he kept a good eye on him. He did not die on Dougal's watch. But I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Dougal left. There was the famous story with the tranquilizers, which I didn't realize it said. I believe Dougal said they were monkey tranquilizers that some girl had given to him on and, and Keith passed out on stage. And the girl a half hour before or whatever was like convulsing on the floor and got taken to the hospital that's, I believe, when Dougal said, "I've had enough of this. We're taking oh, that, monkey well, tranquilizers now." I mean,
1: yeah, that, well, um, monkeys are smaller than humans. So I believe they are elephant tranquilizers.
0: Okay. See, so I, I th- always heard horse. So, and when I or heard horse, say- yeah, but
1: there was something bigger than – it was something that would you know, knock out an animal bigger than uh, a, a human. Yeah. And, and Keith took a lot of them. Yeah, there's the footage. There is the sort of eight-millimeter footage of that. Uh, that was back in 73. I mean, Keith had some more years. That was on the Quadrophenia tour. Yeah. I think it was the first night of the American tour at the Cow Palace um, mm. where Pete famously, after, after they literally – these days, bands are cancelling tours left, right, and centre, and cancelling dates because of exhaustion. Um, literally, the roadies—you see them take Keith off, kind of. You know, I guess they slapped him around a bit for you know, woke him up. He comes back on the drums, and you know, one song later, he just keels back and dubs <laughs> one of oh. four people carrying him off. And Pete says uh, something like, uh, "I think our drummer ate something that disagreed with him." <laughs> And then famously nice <laughs> famously says, Is there anybody out there can play the drums? And a nineteen year old came up and jammed with him for a few songs. And so that was, you know, he's whined and Crazy. dined on that one for years. Yeah,
0: that's a dream situation. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think Dougal was with Keith, and um if I've got this right, uh, you know, the book is twenty years old. I've I've talked a lot about this. It's it you know, I love Keith. To death and the Who is my favorite band. But I think if I've got this right, uh, uh, Dougal flew back from the like quit in LA hmm. when Keith came back. Um, they saw each other a few times and maybe Keith was asking Dougal back and Dougal was like, you know, I, I can't keep doing this, but maybe if, if we've got to get there, the Who recorded Who Are You? And it was the first time that Keith's drumming was really found wanting, basically in Los Angeles he hadn't practiced. He just wanted to play with the Who. I told you how he worshipped Pete. He just wanted to be on stage with the Who, and he right. was actually more lethal to himself when the Who weren't touring, because at least when they were touring, uh, you know, there was little time for him to die. I know this seems strange, but you know, there'd always be somebody right. knocking at his door. He did a couple of good at efforts at it, but there would always be somebody that could rush him to a hospital. Different story at home. Um, His drumming was found lacking on Who Are You. It was the first time that Pete publicly at a restaurant took it out, and Keith told him to ship up or shape out. They decided not to tour that album. Um, Pete took responsibility saying he didn't want to tour, but uh, I think there was a lot of fears that Keith wouldn't be up for it. So Keith really decided he needed to get sober, And he, um, he made every best effort and he started, he got a prescription for a drug called Mm hemineverin, which should never have been administered outside of a sort of hospital scenario. It's, it's a, it's like a, um, methadone or something. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's something that when somebody's in withdrawal, you check them into a hospital or they go into a, a rehab and you give them this to cope with the withdrawal symptoms. He, being Keith, managed to, talk it out of a doctor, um, uh, a doctor I tracked down who obviously did not want to talk to me about this, but... uh, (laughs) But, um, that doctor had some culpability, but there was nobody there. Dougal would probably have taken a significant number of those pills and, and stashed them away and made sure that Keith could not take too many. He went on the night of September 6th, 1978. He went out to Buddy Holly premiere, film premiere that Paul McCartney had financed the movie in one way or another. And, um, ironically is seen at a dinner table with Ke- Kenny Jones, who was going to take his place in the, and with Paul McCartney and with other people, he was with Annette. He left early. I don't know whether watching the film brought back strange memories or whether he didn't want the temptation of being at the after show event because he was pictured at the pre-show dinner. Um, went home, unfortunately got in an argument with Annette and she was fed up with his arguments. I think he said something hostile too. And she went and slept on the couch. He took 26 of these pills. Oh my and, God. As a biographer and somebody who with all, maybe apart from people like Dougal, Kim, possibly Pete, possibly Roger, possibly John, I would would say I know a lot about Keith. I wrestle with whether it was a conscious attempt to take his life. I don't believe it was an accident to take 26. I don't, he wasn't drunk enough that night to do that. Or I am inclined to believe that he had been through these cries for help before. And I'm inclined to believe that he thought Annette would, he, he would basically, you know, have t- done an overdose. Annette would have to call someone, including you know 999 in the UK sure. and get his stomach pumped. And then he could wake up knowing that people loved him. It was another cry for help. Annette loves me, she got my stomach pumped. Yeah, She went to sleep on the couch. Um, she'd, he'd, he'd been rude nasty to her and he was snoring. And when she said when she walked back in the room in the morning, she just knew instantly. It was like she said it was a quietness that, you know, that something's wrong.
0: Man, the irony of overdosing on a drug that is used to get you off of drugs is um, it's just too much. You know, I mean, it's oh, it's oh, a yeah. it's a fascinating story. Uh, I believe Dougal said one week of life with Keith with all the laughter and excitement, would be the same as someone's year or entire lifetime of what they I would do. I think so.
1: I think so. And I think, Keith, you know, I, I, I'm not particularly, um, I'm certainly not religious in any conventional sense. I'm not particularly uh, spiritual in that sense of a higher being. But I do think there are certain people who just, like, come to this planet and, and you wonder where they've come from. And Keith is one of those. You know, he was yeah. not normal. Yeah. He changed music, he entertained people, he suffered for his ability to entertain other people. I, as a kid, was one of many people who lived vicariously through his antics because although I was a bit of a terror away, I couldn't have been that much of a terror <laughs> away because I was running my own fanzine and all you know running yeah. a band. Yeah. Um, he uh he enlightened lives. Um, I do think we ended up um, getting our thrills from the likes of Keith, and I think we as fans and the younger generations as fans you know we have to question our own responsibilities and culpabilities when we want our idols to sail close to the sun so that we don't have to yeah there is there is some of that and I felt that guilt and you mentioned something earlier that I didn't quite get to 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 respond to but him breaking Kim's nose three times Kim was about the very last interview I got for the book she was kind of tracking me and Mm -hmm. i just kept calling every two three months and one day eventually she picked up the phone and i went down to austin and i ended up staying a second night i say one night in a hotel and then they told me we hadn't even scratched the surface and i stayed the night with kim and and ian mac and um when i i I already had sort of fallen out of love with keith moon on the research but when she told me about she she was like you know that famous picture of the champagne bottle in the wall and it's framed and Yeah. Well, he threw that at my head. And, you know, he broke my nose three times and she tells me how he acted. It was was tough for me because for the previous hour, we've talked about how wonderful he was, how funny he was, how kind he could be. He was lovely to me the one time I met him. But um, there was a nastiness there and and it did kick in. And at the end of the day, I think that we the age of 18, you you can't really know better, but I think we as a society take some responsibility for wanting yeah. these people to live like this and die like this.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a drug addiction. He's just plain tired. He's probably angry from his body. I mean, his body's probably mad at him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's, it's just too much. Um, so... If anyone wants to read a whole lot more about this, check out the book, Dear Boy, The Life of Keith Moon. You can get it anywhere. Um, You can. I
1: I should say that the American edition is the same book under a different name. They thought Dear Boy was too homoerotic, (laughs) so they called it Moon, The Life and Death of a Rock Legend. Okay. I do occasionally get somebody popping up and going, I don't know which book to get. It's like whichever one you want to get. Yeah. They're the same book. The British paperback does have an afterword that I wrote a few years later with extra information. So- yeah, I'd lean towards the British one
0: yes, myself. Yes, yes. Okay, that's what I got, exactly. And I yeah. got it, and you can you can find it, and I got it from England, and it came here pretty quickly. Um, I will say, as we as we get Tony out of here, because he has another call to hop on, Um, Tony, you host a podcast called One Step Beyond. I think mm. now it might be a good thing just to tell people where they can find you on your website to learn more about you, and they can kind of do a little research um, and all that sure. good stuff.
1: Sure, sure. So finding me is pretty easy, tonyfletcher.net, and uh, if you want to contact me from there, there is a little contact uh, page. Yeah. One of those little contact pages. I do get those. And, um, yeah, there's a bunch of other books there. They're all on the front page. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to tout them all right now. I'm very proud of my books. I've written a lot about music and, um, I have a second memoir that's, uh, kind of going out to the editors right now. Um, and. I also just, I do also, um, work with kids around music and a rock academy up here in Woodstock, which is, we had the original Paul Green figure who was the, the, the model for Jack Black in School of Rock. And so I have the fun of doing that, which keeps me playing and keeps me working with, with, with kids. And I have a love of the outdoors. I'm an ultra runner and yeah. a, a traveler when I can. And so my podcast, One Step Beyond is actually more about the outdoors and, 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 uh, you know, The tagline is positively engaging with the world outside our door. And, you know, I'm one of those people who sort of got through, um, I didn't have any particularly crazy years, but I like being around and I like making it to old bones and I want to make it to older bones. And so this is a place for people who are adventurous, not not trying to live like sober lives necessarily. It's not about that. It's just people who want to, you know, be doing stuff. So yeah. that's what you can find that. So that podcast is available wherever you look for podcasts, One Step Beyond. Maybe add my name if more than one show comes up and you'll find yes.
0: mine. Yes, and I'll put everything in the description and all that good stuff. Um, Tony, this has been awesome. I'm so glad we could make it happen after, you know, a yeah. couple months of trying to do it. And this is just, I think we've done, you know, Keith a good uh, service with his legacy of, you know, the all the good stuff, the funny stuff, some of the bad stuff. Um, it's something to look at and learn from. So again, if you if you want to learn more, um, Dear Boy or just Moon, I'll put the description, uh, the link in the description. So um, Tony, thank you so much for being here, my friend. I've had a great time talking to you.
1: Thank you, Baron, And congrats on becoming a dad again. Second time around. Enjoy it. Thank you. Bye now.
0: If you like this podcast, find me on social media at Drum History and please share, rate, and leave a review. And let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future. Until next time, keep on learning.